Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Greetings, scholar warriors, fellow travelers, and anarcho-curious. This is CJ, your Renaissance man in the New Dark Age and guerrilla scholar warrior, Free Range CJ, coming to you from what is now my full-time home office studio. Yes. Approximately a couple of weeks ago, I officially resigned from the teaching position I had held for 15 years. And now I am a completely full-time podcaster and other content creator, thanks to the help and support and contributions of viewers like you. By the way, as of this recording, my Indiegogo campaign to make Dangerous History a full-time endeavor is it close to $21,000 worth of contributions from excellent individuals. And Indiegogo, because it reached my original goal of 12000 before the original deadline I had set, Indiegogo is allowing it to go on, I think, for a full another month. So this thing is going to be live, and you can still kick in to help me out and to get those perks up until, I believe, September 2nd. So I'll link to it again in the show notes for this episode. But thank you to everybody who chipped in and all the recent people who have signed up on Patreon and Subscribestar and all those who were already supporters through those venues who have upped their contribution levels in recent days and weeks. I am a free man. But anyway, today's episode was actually recorded roughly a couple of weeks ago. But due to how busy I was, you know, cleaning up my office and classroom and dealing with all the things having to do with wrapping up a job I've been at for 15 years and a bunch of family stuff, most of it good, a few things of it negative, but most of it positive stuff over the past few weeks, I've gotten a little bit slowed down in my recording and editing and all that stuff. So, working hard to get back on the trolley as far as that goes. But anyway, this episode was actually recorded roughly a couple weeks ago, maybe a little bit more, I forget. But what we're talking about here is, you know, still as relevant as it was a few weeks ago, so it should still be good. And this is going to be DHP episode 238. And in this episode, I am speaking to good friend of the show and good internet friend of mine, Alexander von Sternberg of the podcast History Impossible, which I always recommend as one of the relatively few history podcasts I actually listen to. So, if you're not already a listener to History Impossible, please check it out. And also, I want to mention, I just saw recently on social media that it looks like Alex is trying to do a similar move to me as far as going fully independent in the podcasting world and other things. I know he also writes a fair amount. And so, in addition to linking to his podcast, I am also in these show notes going to link to his Patreon, 
and urge you to, if you like his work and appreciate it, consider signing up to support him there and maybe helping another great indie podcaster be able to go full-time. By the way, I'll be putting my money where my mouth is, and uh, soon after recording this intro, I'm going to be signing up to Alex's Patreon personally. And I'm going to pay it forward, all the awesome support you individuals have given to help me become independent. Um, I'm going to do what I can, when I can, to help out other great indie podcasters when they're in the same boat I was in. But anyway, some of you may remember that a little bit over a year ago, I believe it was in May of 2021, Alex and I recorded a conversation that was inspired by an article he had written that compared the whole wokeism movement with Great Awakenings in American history. Because like me, he sees the really radical woke elements as being essentially religious in nature, even though most of them certainly wouldn't see it that way and would vehemently deny it. But I think when you're looking at wokeism, particularly in its more radical forms, from an outside perspective, it's pretty obvious that this is in many ways a religious movement. So anyway, we connected again in late July to revisit the subject of how it's going in general, and um, especially in regards to things like movies and TV, which he and I are both, you know, thoughtful observers and critics of those sorts of media, and I think we both agree that in kind of a Jungian psychological sense, our movies and TV shows are the most important media today in terms of kind of molding how people see the world and so forth. And so therefore, if a huge amount, the vast majority of big mainstream corporate movies and TV being cranked out are being shoehorned full of wokeista messages... This is something to be concerned about, both because of what it does to just the aesthetics and enjoyment and creativity of those media, as well as to what sorts of messages it is implanting in a propagandistic sense in the consumers of those media. And of course, I'll link to that episode from a bit over a year ago in the show notes to this episode as well, and I believe it was DHP episode 220, but don't quote me on that. Um... Whatever is the correct, whether it's 220 or something else, it will be in the show notes of this episode. So anyway, without any further ado, I present to you Revisiting the Great Awakening. Right. So back uh, to talk about the Great Awakening. I think what a little over a year after the last time we discussed the Great Awakening. Does that sound about right? About a year and a half, actually, almost year oh, and man. year and three months. I think year and four oh. months because it was in like March, and I had written that piece for Ario in uh, January. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So oh, it's been a it's been a a bizarre last two years and change. It's Yes. Time has like sped up and slowed down at the same time. And it's hard to, I mean, things in, in my own mind are bleeding together. Things from 2020, <laughs> 2021, 2022, or like, it's hard for me to even remember. Yeah. You got years when decades happen. Yes. So, I mean, I, I, I have to wonder if this is how people felt after the Spanish flu. And I'm not, obviously the very different pandemics. 
because <laughs> the, yeah. the the Spanish flu, you know, left like what, a hundred million people dead. So it's a little bit different, but I'm just wondering if people had that sense of just sort of unreality afterward. And just, you know, we talked about this too, that like people just, I, I am convinced that when pandemics happen, regardless of if they're like truly like heinous and awful and a hundred million people die, or they are completely overblown and not that dangerous. Like COVID was relatively speaking, like if just people just want to move on, they don't want to think about it. It's like, let's yeah. just put this in the rear view mirror because it sucked for, you know, fill in the blank reasons. You know, I lost a loved one. My governor's a retard. <laughs> I mean, yeah. there's so many other, like, there's so many things that could like pile up in someone's mind, you know? So I, I think moving on seems to be the, the theme of post pandemic life. And yeah. I should note, by the way, I mean, I don't know how you're feeling about, the culture right now. And that's what we're here to talk about, but I'm happy to report that I'm going to be uncharacteristically optimistic, I think in this episode. And it is honestly, largely because I've been finally reading what is now fast becoming one of my favorite books of all time, Eric Hoffer's True Believer. Thank you so much, by the way, for recommending that to me. It's, it's such a good read. I'm loving it so much. So that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, You're welcome. Um, So how would you say that reading the true believer has uh, changed or influenced your view of the great awakening. I think it absolutely characterizes what was happening uh, as an awakening as a fifth grade awakening, if you will, like uh, in 2020, but what I think it also has sort of started to make me realize is that my speculation, and I believe I did speculate this as a possible scenario in the essay I wrote for Oreo magazine, that this is going to be more determined by market forces, I think, than people realize. I don't think that there are actually that many, not to make a pun, true believers in this awakening that's happening. That doesn't mean it's not dangerous in its own way. doesn't mean that it doesn't have the characteristics of a religious revival. It just means that I think when all said and done, it's going to kind of have landed with a thud. Now, the damage that it causes on its way down to that thud, you know, that's the part where I'm not going to be that much of an optimist. But I think, honestly, and I've heard other commentators say this, uh, so I, you know, take this with a grain of salt that I might be like, you know, taking a little bit of influence from people like John McWhorter, for example, um, who's, by the way, his book, Woke Racism, is another fantastic book people should be reading. It's really good. Yeah, that, that's one I got it not long after it came out. And yeah. I just still haven't gotten around to reading it yet, but it's like a you know, quick I've, weekend I've, read. Yeah, it's amazing. It's okay, great. Yeah, I've, you know, I've listened to him um, on, you know, a bunch of different shows and things. So I, I think I've got a pretty good uh, handle on his overall, you know, perspective on all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I mean, he said this and uh, the guys in the fifth column podcast, they've said it too. I mean, people from all over the political spectrum, but who broadly identify as small L liberal or libertarian, you know, critical minded people, I would say, have started to say that this is on its way out. Like, I think the trends that um, that's the new term online, uh, the vibe shift is happening. There hmm. seems to be a vibe shift. And I think you can see it with all sorts of things uh, in the culture, um, but also in politics. Uh, you know, there's obvious shifts that, for example, the Democratic Party specifically, they're, uh, I, I, I'm, maybe you know this. I actually don't know who coined this term, but the term uh, demographics is destiny, the, essentially the LBJ 
uh, belief that the Democratic Party is the refuge of minorities. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I don't know who who coined that term, but it is being so like it's being wiped away, like with the midterms coming up and with 2024. I mean, the, you saw the evidence in the 2020 election, even because the number of Latinos who voted for Trump just skyrocketed. I think it was like a third of Latino men or something, some really crazy number. Yeah. And it's only increasing. I mean, I was, we were talking off, um, off recording earlier that my area that I live in, in, uh, in LA County in the Valley is a, I'm pretty sure it's a red area and it's predominantly a Latino area that I live in. There were so many recall Gavin Newsom signs all over my area. So, but you see it in the South Texas election, uh, with the, uh, the first Mexican American immigrant, uh, super MAGA woman who's like married to a border patrol agent, which I just, I'm sorry. I just think that's really funny, yeah. but, uh, but yeah, she won, she's going to be in office for like three months, but you know, that's, uh, you know, that's, that says something like, and I think that we are seeing this, this sort of shift happening, at least in the political realm, but I think we're seeing it in the cultural realm too. There's, there's less patience for Wokistani bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. I'm seeing some of that too. Um, and kind of hearkening back to uh, that other discussion we had, I guess, last year about realignments. Well, that was only that, a couple months ago, actually. <laughs> time, oh time blends, yeah. man. Yeah. 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 T- time. <laughs> I've, I've been in, in too many altered states lately, I think, but um, yeah. <laughs> it, the, there's definitely, and I was just recently, I can't remember where or who I was just recently either reading or listening to somebody and they were making a point might have been Sagar on Jetty or some somebody like mm-hmm. that, um, who you know I don't always agree with, but at least he's like a, a interesting guy to listen to and is not crazy. And um, you, you can't say right wing socialist about too many people, but I would say that about him. Yeah, he's you know <laughs> not not a hundred percent on 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 my ideological spectrum, but you know yeah exactly he's, he, he's intelligent and you know I, I find him at least worth you know considering very interesting. And yeah. um, I think it was him. He was saying. That and and he was talking about this trend that you brought up of you know more and more Latinos, not Latin exes. Oh um, God! Yeah. Uh, well, and actually, there's an I have another anecdotal example about the pushback on this. Uh, yeah. But uh, I want to let you finish your point. But just I want to put a pin in that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, well, the, the way um, I think Sagar was putting it was something like the real divide. He he was sort of saying that that class. Mm-hmm. is coming to reassert itself against all of the woke, you know, divisions of, of race and sex and whatever. And he said, it's not even class in terms of how much money do you make? What's your net? Yeah. What's your income? It's really, it's a cultural version of class that has more to do with, uh, did you go, especially fairly recently, uh, through the university system or not. Yes. And yes. so he that said, was Sagar. I remember that. Yeah. He, yeah. yeah. He, he said something like, you know, you might have a neighbor who makes a hundred grand, who's a, a plumber. Yeah. Uh, and he's, you know, not part of this, this elite woke culture in the way that maybe someone with a, a fancy feminist studies degree from a Ivy league university, but who currently, you know, works at Starbucks yeah. um, doesn't make a whole lot of money. <laughs> But then just in this cultural sense, you know, she's more of the quote unquote elite uh, in yeah. this sense, because, you know, she would buy into all the woke stuff. And that that's really, I think, a lot of what's going on is that you've I absolutely got think so. Yeah. A, a lot of these, um, you know, Hispanic people and, and even, you know, some uh, African-Americans as well, who th- they're either like blue collar 
workers and, and artisans or uh, small business owners, but they, you know, if they didn't go to college or didn't go to much college or maybe didn't go to college recently when all this stuff really took over, um, they're just not, a, you know, they might have been Democrats before for kind of like mm-hmm. nuts and bolts, like, oh, you know, I'd like a little bit more, you know, uh, welfare state benefits or whatever, but, um, you know, a little bit more social safety net or, you know, things like that kind of traditional uh, yeah. democratic things from like 30 years ago but yeah they're not they're not on board with all this uh woke lunacy well no and and you know to keep it focused on politics really quick there but it is also cultural that uh there are like little anecdotal examples of the cracks forming uh within the democratic party uh there's a story that you might have heard about from a couple months ago i don't remember when it was specifically but uh the san francisco school board firings i don't know if you heard about that um, where like firmly, you know, the people who basically got these two people, I think it was two people on the San Francisco school board, um, like fired, basically, like they voted them out and it was all spearheaded by these democratic voters, primarily voters of color, primarily Asian. And, um, I think Latino people, I, I don't remember that it was one of the heads of the campaign was, uh, this Asian American, uh, guy. And I think what that also kind of speaks to is, the um when when school got involved which it was going to after covid i think when school and therefore children got involved that was going to probably create the vibe shift at least in that realm i think it's gone in some pretty uh distasteful directions in some examples like i think some people have taken it a little too far with the quote unquote groomer discourse out there but uh that's that's a whole other conversation uh the point being is that once school and children get involved, though, there's going you're going to start seeing greater pushback. And I think that's part of it. Um, there's another small thing that uh, I think it, I think Jimmy Dore talked about this. Actually, it was pretty funny because that's how I saw it. And then I looked it up. Uh, Ilhan Omar back in my uh, home state, my home district, actually, funny enough, I would not have voted for, obviously. But, um, you know, just <laughs> the mere fact that I have even a drop of Jewish blood in me makes it impossible, frankly. <laughs> But she's uh, she was uh, at this event. Um, it was a it was like a Somali American uh, sort of cultural heritage event or something. I don't remember the details of it, but she was on stage and she was getting booed by all of her Somali American constituents because she's embraced this woke ideology. And you know, last I checked, a lot of traditional Muslim uh, people, whether they're Americans or not, they're not going to be on board with gender ideology or LGBT uh, rights in general, really. I mean, some are sure, but traditionally though, they're not going to be. And, and they're, they're letting her know. And she got booed off stage despite trying to like, you know, get them to stop for like 10 minutes. So I think that, like I said, there's a vibe shift going on. It's motivated by different things, but there is just generally speaking, a pushback against this stuff at this point, because I think, most regular Americans are just fucking tired of it. They're just sick of seeing it everywhere and hearing it everywhere, especially from their elites. Yeah. And definitely where you see people voting with their remote controls and ultimately with their wallets is in, you know, movies and TV. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I probably was ahead of a lot of people because, you know, like you, I, I think more deeply than most people about movies and TV. I I, I don't just look at it superficially and go, Oh, look, explosions, fun or whatever. Um, (laughs) But, you know, I I actually think deeply about what's going on in terms of, you know, when things are being propagandistic Mm -hmm. and, and what types of themes are being inserted into things and whatever. 
And, you know, I just got, not only was I against a lot of the ideology being, being shoehorned into every movie and TV show over the last five years or more. Um, but it just got boring too. Yeah. Like yeah. It's, it's just, it's so repetitive and so predictable that you can, you know, more often than not, uh, you can predict from the outset of, you know, all you would have to do, like, for example, to predict accurately, most of what's going to happen in the Obi-Wan series is to look at the first trailer and you'd be like, all right, I know exactly yep. what's I can. I can predict down to the detail, probably exactly what what's going to happen in this. And same thing with all the, the recent Marvel shows. It's like mm-hmm. all you got to do is watch a watch a two minute trailer and you can probably predict if if you're paying attention, 90 percent or more of what's going to happen in the series. And see, that's why The Mandalorian, at least season one, I like season two as well. But why Mandalorian season one was so good. Like we had like, I think a couple teasers, a couple trailers. I had no idea what I was in for. Like they were so smart not to reveal baby Yoda, for example, you mm-hmm. know, cause we had no idea what was coming and it was, you know, it made for a fun show. It also made star Wars relevant again, at least to me. And, uh, you know, to be perfectly honest, I, I did enjoy the Obi-Wan series, but I'm, you know, deep down, I'm a star Wars fanboy, So it's kind of easy to get me excited <laughs> for certain things. Yeah, um, well, I have to say, I, I have not watched and I don't plan to watch any episodes of the Obi-Wan series. Um, well, and know. also I think you were the correct age when episode one came out. I was at the absolute wrong age. I was like 11 or 12. So I, I loved episode one when it first came out because I was a child. Right. <laughs> so right. I think everybody older than me, though, rightly saw how bad those prequels were, though. I'm actually of the opinion that the sequels were worse, but that's, you know, that's just me. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the the thing that I think is so interesting, though, about um, the cultural vibe shift, as you're talking about in movies, though, is, well, I, I look at it this way. Movies have always had uh, po- you know, politics in them. Like the the person who writes the movie has their own sort of uh, uh, agenda in a way. But the difference, I think, is, and I think this is also fundamental to the whatever you want to call the ideology that eschews wokeness. I think we could just call it pro- social progressivism. Um, b- but I think what's so interesting though about like uh, movies and TV shows now is they're just not very subtle about it. They're not good at hiding it. Like if you want to, you know, propagandize me with, you know, socially progressive BS, you know, fine, but you better hide it. Like have some subtlety. Like I knew when I I was kind of ahead of the curve on this too, frankly, because I knew that something was wrong when the movie Zootopia came out. And I was like, and I went to go see it. And I was like, this is a very confused movie that's trying really hard to say something very pro-social justice. But I felt really disturbed by it because they were sort of implying that black people were predators and white people were bunnies. And I was like, that feels really racist in a way that I don't think they intended. <laughs> but just the fact that it was so ham-fisted and confused at the same time suggested to me, okay, there's something wrong with how movies are being made now because- I can see the propaganda and it just isn't working for me. So I don't know if you even saw that. If you, if your kids were old enough to see it when it came out, I mean, I I don't know how old your kids are, but like, yeah, I, I think we might've gone to see it. Honestly, I don't, I don't really remember it hardly at all. Yeah. It's, it's a forgettable movie, Uh, but it has a lot of, you know, the the sort of early signs of like trying to be like a super woke movie when it just failed miserably. But uh, yeah. So I, th- I think though, when you talk about movies with 
you know, they're um, like, okay, I'll just use an example here. Like a, a movie that definitely had a sort of political viewpoint that people discuss to this day is John Carpenter's The Thing. People have talked about how it's about communism or people have talked about how it's about um, that's like usually the, the main one, I think. Or people have said that it's like uh, harkening back to the Red Scare or something. I, and I don't know. I don't know what Carpenter intended with that movie, but that's because it doesn't matter. It's still a great movie, whether it has a political agenda or not. You can read into the agenda if you want and try to tease it out, but that doesn't that's not required for the movie to exist. And I think that's the problem with a lot of movies today. Yeah. Uh, a movie like they live or a movie like the matrix or something else yes. like that, you know, y- you can interpret it different ways. And, and part of what makes those movies so brilliant is that anybody with a little bit of an anti establishment or anti authoritarian mindset, whether they're left wing or right wing can mm-hmm. watch one of those movies and, you know, feel something, feel like resonate with it. Right. Yeah. Like someone who thinks um, I, I believe Carpenter himself has said that a lot of what he was satirizing with, they live was kind of like, you know, Reaganism, the Reagan era conservatives and yuppies and that sort of thing. Like conformity. Sort of, sort exactly. Of, yeah. The um, uh, like, like the wall street, you know, like the movie wall street type of people, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, or or the American psycho types, you know. Yeah. Um. That, that it was sort of it was sort of satirizing that that like that's what the aliens were meant to represent. But honestly, uh, because it's done in a, in a somewhat you know loose, open way that's not like rigidly trying to force you to the to the exact same conclusion. You know, you can watch that in different ways, and a and a libertarian like myself can watch it and like, yeah, I get I get some of the satirization of Reagan era conservatives, but at the same time it could just as easily be interpreted as a a metaphor for communism or a metaphor for any sort of like a anything. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's about conformity and conformity is what's necessary for, uh, well, any ideology in a lot of ways, Uh, any establishment ideology, I should say anything that's collectivist. I mean, that's yeah, exactly. And I, you know, I, I, I like movies that are able to do that, that are able to like take their point of view but have it be like, I, I love the idea of like, say, for example, you going into like a film discussion with some like super lefty and both of you talking about how much you love they live. And then when you tease it out, you both realize you're coming from completely different perspectives about right. why. And I think that that's, that's what makes a good movie uh, in a lot of ways. I mean, there's a lot of movies that don't do that, but that are good, but yeah, like that's a good movie. Yeah. Yeah. And the, to me, and and I know I've probably said this before over and over again, but to me, there's just a, a very big difference. You can tell when an author or a screenwriter or whoever, when they basically start with their ideology yes. and then just try and like, you know, craft a flimsy little story with some cardboard cutout characters uh, onto their ideology. And you mm-hmm. can also tell when they, when they maybe, maybe started with kind of a neat premise or idea for a story, but then they ruined it by shoehorning their ideology into it where it doesn't even make sense. Um, and the, there's a difference between that versus someone who is primarily dealing with plot and character and themes in the broad sense of the word, you know, like universal human themes that go back to ancient right. times. And yeah, do does that person also have their own own personal beliefs about things, including politics and whatever? Like, yeah. And probably that person's beliefs are going to to influence the 
the story they write or the movie they make. But that's a, that's very different than when the person is like, you know, very blatantly, deliberately, very kind of didactically, you know, writing something that's more along the lines of like a medieval morality play than, right. than like a, an organic story that maybe also does have some, you know, in this case, more medieval morality, you know, just kind of organically woven into it. And there's always those moments that take you uh, out of the movie or, or whatever it is where, you know, e- even if it's an otherwise pretty good movie, there'll just be like a scene or a particular little exchange of dialogue where it's like, oh, I can see that's where one of the writers shoehorned their ideology into it in a very ham-fisted way. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the equivalent of, I can't remember um, who I first heard it, put it, put it this way, um, but but that a lot of the movies that have heavy doses of wokeism shoehorn into them. It's very similar to like a God's not dead movie or, yes. or yes. Um, I, I've heard, uh, and I've, I've never watched, uh, I don't think any of them, but I've heard that Tyler Perry <laughs> yeah. will do the same thing where Tyler Perry uh, will make a movie. That's like this goofy comedy. And then he'll like shoehorn a sermon into it somewhere. And, you know, I've never watched any of these movies, but I've heard it described. And it's like, yeah, that's exactly it. It's like, you're watching this silly silly fun comedy and whatever. And then like, Oh, all of a sudden we're going to preach to you for 10 minutes. It's like, yeah, that, yeah. that takes you out of the movie. And is like, Oh, I'm no longer watching uh, a story being told. I'm now listening to whoever wrote it uh, preaching to me. It's, you know, and I, I, I'm just joking because I can't obviously make this claim, but I'm going to blame Aaron Sorkin for this. I'm going to blame him for that opening monologue from the newsroom where Jeff Daniels invades against uh, how, how ineffective liberals are and how evil conservatives are. And that's just what has informed how everything is written now. <laughs> Cause if I remember right, that came out in like 2012 or something. So that kind of tracks with the timeline here. <laughs> I don't You remember, remember that monologue that was like going viral for like, it, it seemed to go viral like every other year or so, especially during the Trump years. Yeah. I don't remember it too well. I think I, I, I never watched the show. I think I probably watched the clip of it on YouTube once, but I don't remember it too well. Yeah, it's um, I mean, it's it's Jeff Daniels. He's great and he does a good job with the monologue. But yeah, it's it's just preaching. It's just uh, it 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 feels more ham fisted than a Bill Maher new rule, you know, mm-hmm. um, and uh, actually speaking of Bill Maher, he's another example of someone who I think has picked up on the vibe shift and has definitely started to pivot back towards being super pro free speech and anti wokeness and all that stuff now that Trump is gone and the TDS can subside a little bit in him. So it's made him a little more interesting, but yeah, like um, I, I was going to say, there's another thing I was listening to. And I think the, the one person who really picked up on this pollution, I'll call it of Hollywood, but of, um, of a uh, film and television, but specifically film was Brett Easton Ellis, whose podcast I was listening to since day one. I think he started it in 2013 or something like that. And within a couple of years, with by by 2015, he was talking about this stuff constantly because you know he's writing Ground Zero, working in Hollywood. And there was an early episode where he went on a rant about how he was like annoyed that some feminist blogger or journalist or something was saying that a movie, I think it was, I think he was talking about Wolf of Wall Street and how it was like, it was like so profoundly misogynistic and awful. And Brett Easton Ellis just lost his shit and just starts saying over and over again, how do you not realize a depiction is not an endorsement, but for some reason, Hollywood has gone down this path. I think, you know, I'm just going to keep saying it ever since the newsroom monologue went viral of thinking that their depictions have to be endorsements. And and, and Brett Easton also know a thing or two about that. I mean, 
if you watch American Psycho, never mind read it, because if you read it, it's you're going to have some nightmares probably. But if you watch American Psycho, and I want to say it like opens with some of the most horrific anti-Semitic bullshit, and and then like 15 minutes later, you hear some of the most horrific misogynistic bullshit coming out of the characters' mouths. But it's so obvious, at least to me, and probably to you, because I'm assuming you've seen it. There, Mary Heron, when she made that movie, was not endorsing this stuff. She was saying, look at these horrible human beings and judge for yourself how like you feel about them. You know, like I just letting letting the story speak for itself, letting the characters speak for themselves in that sense is something that I think has largely been lost. Yeah, very, very different example that comes to my mind is uh, the movie Blazing Saddles, like Blazing yes. Saddles. <laughs> Blazing Saddles would and could never be made in in modern times, and yeah, I I think a lot of like you know woke millennials and Zoomers would watch Blazing Saddles and just be nonstop offended and never laugh at anything, and they would they would come away from it thinking, what a racist movie, you know, <laughs> and instead of understanding like that movie is completely making fun of racism. And, yeah. and exposing how stupid and ridiculous racism is. <laughs> and keep in mind how they've probably never seen or even heard of D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which, by the way, you should just do a single episode in your uh, Wilson series about how he screamed that at the White House. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm, I'm definitely going to bring it up. Actually, the, the very next Wilson episode uh, I'm going to do is going to be uh, a topical one all about Wilson's beliefs and actions in regard to the question of race. Oh man. Um, because <sighs> it's, <gonna> be. <laughs> yeah. Cause it's, it's, it's more complicated than, than people often think, you know, they just often are like, well, he's a Southerner. So he's kind of a typical Southern racist. It's like, uh, he actually, his views were more closer, not to say they weren't influenced by, by his, his Southern upbringing, but his views on racism, at least by the time he was an adult and a professional were much more in line with like a, a Northeastern Yankee wasp. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know. Well, he was a progressive, he was yeah. a progressive racist. I mean, you know, actually uh, I'll, I'll crib Robin D'Angelo. He was a quote unquote, nice racist. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. And, and he, he had complicated views um, because of course, if, if you're going to talk about Wilson's views about race and ethnicity, um, you can't just talk about his views about black people. You'd have to also, um, he had interesting, complicated views about, you know, basically, non wasps um you know he he said and and he, he said and wrote some things that were not too complimentary about like you know southern and eastern europeans at various times and he had, he had complicated opinions uh, about jews and catholics he um i think by the time he was he was you know well into his career i think he was actually pretty decent by the standards of back then on on his opinion towards jews and catholics but the, on the other hand he's uh not not a huge fan of of black people. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and that's a th and you know and and that's why I bring it up is that like Birth of a Nation is objectively the most racist successful film ever made. It's it's incredibly racist <laughs> and it's a and also it's a great film. It's very well made, especially for its time. You can say the same thing about uh, Triumph of the Will by Lenny Riefenstahl. It's one of the most amazing pieces of propaganda ever created aesthetically speaking yeah yeah um, both of those are still you know studied in film schools to this i day. studied them yeah, yeah yeah and there and it it was one of those moments when i watched triumph of the will and i was like 
really uncomfortable in class, I was like, this is really good. And I felt really bad <laughs> like mm-hmm. thinking that, but then I was like, but that, that, and that I think was a very um, formative experience for me because I was like, you're able to separate aesthetic from ideology. And that is another issue, I think, especially in academia, in the cultural studies field where uh, I actually got my minor in that. So I'm relatively fluent in Wokistani in this sense. Uh, they would say that you cannot separate the ideology from the art because the ideology is what allowed the art to exist to begin with. And to me, that's just a, it's a bullshit chicken and egg argument. It doesn't matter. Um, like, I think if you choose to separate it, you can, you don't have to, but in my opinion, that is a very limiting way to look at art. Like I'm trying to think of an example besides a uh, triumph of the will. Um, I guess you could really point to, yeah, I'll use Birth of a Nation again. You can watch that movie and be horrified by the blackface, horrified by what it's essentially saying, which is that the KKK saved America from reconstruction. But you can also recognize how horrifying that is and still enjoy yourself looking at how they made something so epic so early on in film's genesis as a medium. and. I, I don't know. I, I I don't know how to like not separate those things. Now, granted, I should uh, just cop to something. I have tried watching Bill Cosby, like specifically his special, Bill Cosby himself, which is one of the greatest comedy specials of all time. I do have trouble laughing at it, you know, compared to what it used to be. That's just me. That's my personal thing. I'm not here to say though, no one should watch that special. If you can still find that shit funny good on you. Uh, but you know, like I, I can still enjoy a Roman Polanski film though. Like, um, Rosemary's baby is still an amazing film, for example, or Chinatown. Yeah. I I think it's important to be able to separate the art from the artist up up to a certain point. Now to me, it's like, and, and I gotta be honest, I haven't watched any, I was a huge Bill Cosby fan when I was a kid. Um, I, I, I actually had a whole bunch of his albums on, on cassette, that yeah. we would like listen to on road trips and stuff. And, and I was a fan of the Cosby show, uh, which was on when I was a kid in the eighties. And I, you know, I still think that it was a, it's a brilliant sitcom. Sure. And to be honest, since all the stuff came out about him, I, I haven't tried to, to watch or listen to anything from him. So I don't, I don't know uh, how I, how I would react. I mean, I, I honestly, the only time I think that it would be justifiable to be uncomfortable, like, uh, beyond it just being personal taste is when he made a joke about Spanish fly. <laughs> like, yeah. Not going to age well there, but yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, yeah it's to me, it, it would be different. I feel like he was telling jokes that were like joking about date raping women and stuff like yeah. that. Um, <laughs> you look back and be like, wow, that didn't age well, you know, but, but instead he's like telling funny stories about like going to the dentist and things. So I yeah. don't know, but, but I think in general, the, the ability to separate the art from the artist is important. And I think what happens is, uh, because progressivism has been the dominant default ideology of most American institutions for over a century, including most of the academic and entertainment and news institutions, I think because of that, if you're progressive and the majority of the arts and entertainment and whatever that's being produced is also by your your fellow travelers, then you don't have to have the experience as you're growing up and, and engaging with arts and entertainment 
you don't have to have the experience of having to separate the art from the artist very often. Whereas mm-hmm. if you're, if you're conservative, there's going to be a lot fewer, you know, creatives who are conservative. Uh, if you're libertarian, that's another, you know, and that's, that's an even rarer ideology just amongst the general population or anything like that, or anarchist or whatever, you know, if, if you're of an ideology, a belief system that just has almost zero voices in the entertainment industry, you kind of have to be able to, in order to enjoy anything, if it's well-made, you have to be able to like shut off the part of your brain that, you know, wants to conflate the art and the artist. I mean, I just think mm-hmm. about like, there's a lot of Bruce Springsteen songs I like. Mm-hmm. I, I think Bruce Springsteen's political uh, ideology is mostly crap. He's mostly just, you know, a very, uh, a very typical progressive Democrat hack in yeah. his, his political beliefs and, and not even a, not even a very, um, you know, nuanced one. Um, <laughs> yeah. But like I could still appreciate a lot of his music and the same, right. same with a lot of other, you know, uh, films and, and songs and things like that. And it's a shame that we can't like that. We have to keep pointing to the uh, exceptions like John Milius, for example, who, you know, there seems to be a common thread with every history podcaster I've gotten to know. Every every one of you guys, including me though, loves John Milius. And it's because he's probably one of the best screenwriters in Hollywood history. Is he still doing anything? Is he alive? Do you know? Uh, Last I checked, he's alive, but uh, several years back, he had a major stroke and he basically kind of retired from public life ever since. Mm. I get the impression that he, he is only partially recovered from it. Okay. Uh, which is That's yeah. a shame. Yeah. I know yeah. his daughter is pretty active in the political scene. Um, but uh, yeah, he, unfortunately, yeah. Cause I, there was that documentary made about him a couple of years back too, that I've been meaning to watch. It's very um, good. Is it? Okay. Yeah. yeah he's, he was a character for sure. And, and, you know, but honestly, yeah, a, a good example of a conservative, one of the rare ones that I really love as a filmmaker is Mel Gibson. I think with the exception of the passion of the Christ though, that movie is still a beautiful film. It's um, like aesthetically, I, it doesn't resonate with me like on like a, you know, on a faith level or anything like that. And there are some iffy depictions of Jews in it, which, you know, that has more to do with the myth itself and less to do with Gibson, I think. But, you know, as I think you and I both like to say, your mileage may vary. It depends on who you're talking to. But I think with Gibson's movies, you can absolutely separate the art from the artist. Braveheart is just a damn good movie. It's historically inaccurate as fuck, but it is a damn good movie. Uh, the recent Hacksaw Ridge is an incredible film, probably one of the best World War II films I've ever seen. And it's just because he is just so good at just crafting narratives and uh, like creating engaging visuals and stuff um, and getting great performances out of his actors. I mean, I, I really do think Mel Gibson... Yeah, he is a he was a very horrible person in terms of like some of the stuff he was saying and the stuff we heard him say in those recordings to his uh, ex-wife. But that doesn't matter to me, really. It it doesn't affect. I mean, you could make the argument some of the stuff he said affected how he depicted Jews and Passion of the Christ. But, you know, at that point, you're engaging in mind reading. I think most people who wanted to talk shit about Passion of the Christ just wanted to. It was, you know, peak being edgy anti-Christian back in the day. I should know because I was one of those people. But, you know, I was also 17 or 18 when it came out. So <laughs> go figure. I just think that the, the the way people consume art is flawed. Or, you know what? I'm not going to say that because I can't say that. I'm going to say that the way Hollywood has come to assume people consume art is flawed. 
because they're the ones making the decisions. They're the ones who are saying, no, we need to have moral clarity in our films. They don't say it outright like the New York Times did, but they don't have to because, you know, that's exactly what they're saying. And moral clarity, as you as you said earlier, is coming through a progressive lens, which sorry, Hollywood, that's not America. That's just a part of America. And it's not even that big a part of America. I think most Americans are pretty ambivalent about this stuff that we talk about. But you and I, like you said, think about this stuff pretty deeply all the time. So it does start to feel like it's more common. But again, I think that that helps explain why there does seem to be a vibe shift going on is that most Americans are just kind of like, eh, whatever. Yeah. It's interesting to note that the the biggest movie and i'm sure it will be you know in five months when the year is over still the the biggest movie of the year is top gun maverick by far and last year the biggest movie of the year was spider-man no way home now Mm -hmm. these are of the last two years these are the two uh biggest budget hollywood movies that didn't really have wokeism shoved into them in in any way home didn't it's a Disney film. I'm shocked. Um, but but wasn't it technically something where well, these it, are crossovers? I know yeah, that. Yeah, have, yeah. I, yeah. I, I thought it was technically a Sony film, and Disney was only peripherally involved, and in, and that might have been part of the reason why it didn't have wokeism shoved into it. Yeah, I mean, well, or also because Disney is like, okay, well, now we have Disney Plus, we can make well, and again, maybe this is part of the vibe shift. Maybe they're diversifying. Maybe they're like, okay, we're going to make these big blockbuster movies. And they're going to be as politically neutral as possible. And then we're going to shoehorn in all the BS into our Disney Plus shows because that's more of a subscription base. We have uh, we can experiment, quote unquote, more with that. Uh, I haven't watched any of the Disney Plus shows, so I can't speak to that. Um, but I would imagine that, you know, they probably learned their lesson after Captain Marvel came out to. Well, I think it did pretty well, but it it would that was. I don't know. I, yeah, I've gotten the impression from what I've seen coming out of them and from what I've heard coming out of the mouths of the people working for them and their executives. I get the impression that that most of the, the higher ups within Disney, th- I think a lot of them are true believers in. Oh, wow. OK, I, I really I get that impression based on the things they say and do, because they'll, they'll say and do things that are clearly counterproductive uh, from a from a profit you know, point of view. Then that's the indicator, I think. I actually think that's a really good point you bring up. I I think that Disney will be the last major company, uh, if they ever do, to to abandon wokeism. I I think a lot of the people in positions of power in Disney really believe in this stuff, and they're going to run it into the ground. Um, And all all you have to do is is look at, you know, how many times have they done the same move where they, they put out, you know, a movie or a show that... Uh, shits on a long established beloved character in order mm-hmm. to elevate some, you know, more diversity box checking new character or whatever. They do the yeah. classic, classic bait and switch, and fans complain. And then they immediately label the fans as toxic, racist, yep. sexist, whatever. It's and a like marketing that has happened stunt. so many times that it's like watching, it's like watching a, you know, choreographed kabuki dance or something. Right. And you probably saw this, and I wouldn't blame you if this made you just say, I'm never watching Obi-Wan, but you saw it happen with, um, I'm forgetting the actress's name, uh, but she plays one of the Inquisitors. And the thing is, what's really funny, I was you know, on Twitter uh, just seeing what people were thinking of the new series, just because I was curious. And they agreed with me that her performance in the first couple episodes is shockingly bad. Like, I don't know what the choice was that she was making or what Deborah Chow, the director, was thinking, 
they were, I think they were going for, and this is not a positive comparison. So I don't know why they would have done this, but I think they were trying to get her to act like Hayden Christensen in the prequels <laughs> and I, like making her like bratty and annoying and just making really weird facial expression choices as an actor. Anyway. So the point is a lot of people, myself included, were like, what are they doing? Like everybody else in this show is acting very well. Hey, uh, Ewan McGregor, especially he's one of the few good things about the prequels. Uh, his Alec Guinness impression is spot on, but he like, but, but like she was just this weird diamond in the rough of poor quality and people were only talking about her acting and then, like you said, it's Kabuki without missing a beat. It was almost like they had pre-prepared statements. The next day, there was a bunch of Disney execs saying, "Oh, we sh- we knew this was going to happen. There would be there was there was going to be toxic racist fanboys coming after this actress of color in our show." And I literally saw none of that in the discourse. Were there probably some people who were calling her horrible names and making really shitty memes that were probably raises the level of a 4chan meme sure i'm sure they were there but they were not the vast majority of people talking about it yeah that's that's what they'll do they'll they'll cherry pick they'll they'll cherry pick they'll find like the handful of tweets that like you know where somebody who probably isn't even like an actual hardcore racist but it's just you know a troll being offensive because that's yeah. how the internet works they'll find the handful of tweets where somebody really did say something really kind of nasty and racist and whatever and be like see that's all the fans yep you know? yep yep and i've and honestly this is where i i proudly wear my conspiratorial uh nature when it comes to hollywood on my sleeve i i, I quote unquote put myself on the line i didn't put anything online but i I, I still stand by my claim that the Will Smith slap at the Oscars was staged. I don't think that was real. And I think it was a failed publicity stunt. It actually bit him in the ass. And I think that that's what was going on there. Uh, I, so because of that, because I have such a low opinion of just how cynical Hollywood is, I wouldn't be shocked if all of the racist comments or most of them, or at least some of them spearheading the stuff against this actress. And I do feel bad not remembering her name because she does get better in the show. And she actually is a, a, a pretty accomplished stage actress, which actually helps explain why her performance is kind of bad on screen. But like, I, I am, I've, I have such a low opinion of Hollywood that I would not be surprised if most of those comments were just people working for Disney, that they created that the, the racism to create controversy to therefore create buzz. And yeah, therefore, yeah. they could use it as a PR move. If someone told me that, that they had evidence of that, I would not be surprised. Yeah, nor nor would I, right? Because it would basically be just like uh, uh, the Jussie Smollett move on steroids in a way. Right. right? And, and there's something, you know, I'm going to just just to, you know, give voice to a, uh, a sort of a more pro-social justice talking point. How fucking racist is that? How horrible is that to subject your own actress to racism just to create engagement? And let's say they didn't even do that. Let's say it was organic. How dare you highlight racist, horrible shit directed at one of your actresses just to get people to pay attention and for you, the company, to look virtuous? That's horrible. Like that's morally reprehensible to do something like that. <laughs> I yeah. mean, it's and and that's what I think is par for the course. And I think also is why you're right that if there is a holdout, the last holdout will be Disney, and that's a hell of a holdout. They own like sixty-five or seventy percent of Hollywood or something. So you know, I mean, I don't think they'll ever own everything uh, as long as Tom Cruise is alive, for example. I mean, you know, he's. I'm kind of sad that Mission Impossible 7, uh, which is split into two parts, is going to be the last one that he does. But I mean, I guess he is pushing 60, so it makes sense. But 
Yeah, I was going to say, though, even though you have Disney, the massive juggernaut that is Disney being the last holdout, Netflix has already jumped ship on this stuff. They canceled all of their woke projects, every single one of them. The Meghan Markle Harry show or whatever the hell that was called. Uh, (laughs) They were going to make an animated anti-racist baby show. Cancel that. I mean, there's a lot of other examples. And then I don't know if you saw this. uh, I think it was either leaked or I don't know if it was released publicly, but it became public. An internal memo at Netflix that people are speculating. I think it might have been leaked because they don't no one knows as far as I know. They're speculating that this is because of the completely unhinged anti-Dave Chappelle backlash that was occurring at their company. And they released this memo that quite literally said, well, it didn't literally say, but it said, if you don't like what we're putting out, because we're a diverse company, we're we're putting out stuff that not everyone's going to agree with. If you don't like that, you can quit. Like That is about as clear of a message of saying, we're done with this woke bullshit as I've heard. And when I heard it was, and when the fact that it's Netflix is a very positive sign in my view. Yeah. Meanwhile, we've got Amazon putting out uh, the new woke Lord of the Rings series. Right. Yeah. You know, I wonder if that's going to go down in history as like one of the last big gasps on the way down of, yeah. of the woke entertainment complex like the that'll be seen as what what was the movie that came out um i've never seen it that came out in the early 80s that's considered like the official end of the new hollywood movement oh uh, uh heaven's gate yeah there we go like it is is uh woke lord of the rings <laughs> going to be the heaven's gate of the woke hollywood movement rings of power heaven's gate of 2022 that's so i love it i love it well and what that means though is that there's going to always be this like little cult niche of like highbrow defenders saying actually rings of power is the most brilliant series and adaptation of tolkien ever done because there's people who think heaven's gate is the greatest film ever made they're a very small minority but you're you're right though because that movie flopped so hard hollywood was like okay maybe we got to rethink this auteur shit now i think that was a mistake personally because i love the auteur shit but you know i get it money needs to be made and rings of power wasn't that like half a billion dollars they spent on that some crazy number like if this fails it's gonna be bad yeah yeah it's it's astronomical uh what what they've yeah. dumped into it and it seems like you know i i follow various kind of anti-woke uh, youtube you know entertainment critic channels you know like uh sure critical drinker and nerd rotic and a few others of the, those sorts and it seems like the the tolkien fans are reacting even more like unanimously uh, against this mm-hmm. than say like the star Wars fans, there always would be at least some percentage that would be going along for whatever reason with Disney star Wars and right. Whatever, yeah. And would be defending it and be like, Oh no, the last Jedi was a great movie. And Oh, Ray is such a great character or whatever. And yeah, they were <laughs> anyone who's I'm sorry. Anyone who says Ray is a great character is a fucking moron. <laughs> she is not. No, no. I defend last Jedi on one one key point I just want to say, I love what they did with Luke. I like that he's the reluctant old drunk, essentially, who doesn't want to teach Ray. I think that's a really cool character choice, but that doesn't mean the movie is good. I think know? they could have done something with that, but I think it would I think even that to me, while while a potentially interesting premise, it was it was executed so badly that exactly it, it was, yes. n- none of it felt earned as far as the the, the changes in his character. That, that's the yeah the whole the, i would say that the whole thing with last jedi but really the sequel trilogy as a whole though unearned that's the word 
I think that needs to just keep coming back for why those movies don't work. But um, to your point about rings of power, though, you're saying that the Tolkien fans though, are like pretty much united in this. I mean, I've seen some of the people saying like, Oh, Tolkien, this is very anti Tolkien, but I, I haven't looked into it really. It, yeah. It seems like they're even more close to unanimous in, in Interesting. like, Hey, you are. And in, in part, it's maybe because, you know, Star Wars has been around for almost 50 years, but Lord of the Rings and mm-hmm. The Hobbit and whatever is much older than that. And so, right. you know, I, and, and it's, I, I feel like there's, there's just more of a, of a longer historical grounding of the Lord of the Rings, you know, universe and fans and whatever. Um, and plus then you, you also, there are statements from Tolkien himself where he, where he, I think pulled the plug on a potential, like back when he was still alive, uh, pulled the plug on a potential movie adaptation of one of his books because he's like, no, this isn't, this isn't going to be good. And I don't want someone vandalizing my work. Um, and then, mm-hmm, you know, you look mm-hmm. at the Peter Jackson, Lord of the Rings, Hobbit is kind of shit, but the Peter Jackson, Lord of the Rings is is still so beloved. And, you know, every, everybody yeah. quotes it to this day. And it's the Lord, it's the Star Wars of millennials. You yeah. know what I mean? Like it's, it, it, and I say that as, you know, a fucking peak cusper millennial born in 86, you know, like, I was the exact right age when Lord of the Rings came out and it, it's seriously what it's my favorite trilogy of all time. I, I like it more than star Wars. Yeah. I mean, I've watched the Lord of the Rings trilogy more times than I could even count. Probably. It's an annual and, thing yeah. for me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and yeah. You know what, what you find uh, if you, if you look at like some of the things Peter Jackson said when he was making it, he was very clear. This is not my story. This is Tolkien's story. Mm. I'm doing my best to be a good and honest like interpreter or conduit to tell to- mm-hmm. Tolkien's story on film as as faithfully as I can, you know, with as few uh, uh, deviations as I can uh, from the source material. Now, obviously, there's you know there's mm-hmm. differences and whatever. There's characters that were in the books, not in the movies, but you know that had more to do with like condensing things for time and for the format, not. Who who wants to watch the Tom Bombadil scene? I mean, I did it. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> like, I, I read Fellowship after I watched yeah. it. And I was like, wait, why the fuck are we dwelling on this weird forest dude? And then I went down a rabbit hole and people were telling me like, oh, he's supposed to be God and stuff. And I was like, okay, I don't I don't care. <laughs> I just want to watch the yeah, movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that yeah. when I read the books too. Because I, I think I, I started reading the books after I had seen the first movie. Um, yeah, but, yeah. Yeah, and... Meanwhile, the people involved with making the Amazon Rings of Power, they are explicitly saying, we're updating Tolkien to reflect today's politics. And we're we want to make Tolkien relevant again. We're interpreting him to incorporate today's, you know, it's like, okay, you just admitted this is going to be a complete dumpster fire that almost nobody's going to like. And you're just probably uh, put money on it. You're probably going to just start accusing everybody who doesn't like your shitty a series of not liking it because they're a bunch of bigots and blah, 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 blah. And okay, this is getting old. This has been going on, you know, nonstop for six years at this point. Yeah. Well, and on top of that, like, again, like I said, with the whole Star Wars Obi-Wan thing, the response was so quick that I, I think that they just, they have that in the chamber, you know, every single time, like it's clockwork. They, they, they are ready to do that. And honestly, I do think a lot of people are seeing through it. And again, you use the phrase voting with their wallets earlier. And I think that is why I have kind of shifted from being really worried to realizing, okay, this is not as dire or potentially not as dire as we might have worried. Because 
if stuff stops making money, love it or hate it, we're a capitalist country, we're a capitalist society. And you know, you don't if something doesn't make money and they can identify why, and it's because of shitty politics, they're gonna stop putting the shitty politics in the thing. Now, like you said, the people at Disney up top might well be true believers. I mean, the sense I get is Kathleen Kennedy over at Lucasfilm is too, but at the end of the day, money is money. And, you know, shareholders aren't going to be happy when say, for example, rings of power flops and people aren't watching it and so forth. I know with streaming, it gets a little more complicated because you don't have a box office, but, and people aren't going to cancel their Amazon prime account over rings of power. I mean, that'd be kind of crazy if they did, because you're missing out on so many other things in terms of like just buying stuff. So it's going to be really hard to gauge that, but I, I I really do think that thankfully wokeness has gotten so wrapped up in capital that that's a good thing because woke capital is only as strong as the people engaging with that capital positively. And then once it starts being engaged with negatively, it's gone. They're going to move it out. I mean, I think with Netflix, they were being proactive, but I think that was an example of that. They probably saw the writing on the wall that the money they were throwing at all these like Wokistani projects wasn't going to see much of a return for them. It was actually probably going to land with a thud. And I think, you know, that that shows me that there is something to be positive about with uh, two years on, I would say, because it actually has been two years since the the fifth grade awakening kicked off. I think I think we're on the I, th- I do think we're on the back foot or back end, I should say, not back foot. Yeah, well, another um, another white pill. And I don't know if, if you've been following this at all uh, in in just like the last month or so has been. Uh, do you know who Eric July is? The name rings a bell. Remind me. OK, he's um, he, first off, he's really, really impressive guy because he's been successful in a bunch of different things. He he does um, music. He's the front man for I guess you would call it maybe like a I don't know, a death metal band or something oh, okay. like that. Um, not not my kind of music. But <laughs> he's got a you know, he's successful at it. So so more power to him and he's a black guy by the mm-hmm. way and um he's a basically pretty similar to me in his political views I've, i actually met him briefly at a event at tom woods's house oh, um, back in 2020 cool. and uh yeah so so he's successful as a as a musician and then he also does political commentary and things like that um i i think he i think he currently actually does something working for glenn beck's network even though he's oh, like a libertarian anarchist. sure yeah. Yeah, yeah 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 i think i think he I think he currently does something on the blaze i haven't really watched yeah it. but he also um does he, he's a huge comic book fan and he so he's been doing like youtubes and stuff talking about comics and comic movies for a long time and like he's been on with you know people like critical drinker mm-hmm. and, and nerd Roddick and these other guys and so he's been very critical of wokeism uh, because wokeism started in the comic books mm. before it started in the comic movies. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so right now what's basically happening as, as the Marvel shows and movies get more and more crazy over the top woke, what's happening is they're catching up to where the comic books have been headed for years. And at the same time that the comic books have become increasingly just nothing but woke propaganda, uh, their, their readership, their, their numbers have been falling off a cliff. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause again, consumers are voting with their dollars and comic book fans don't want every single freaking comic book to be, you know, a hero that checks 19 diversity boxes yeah. and the stories are about nothing other than racism and homophobia or whatever. Uh, so anyway, Eric July, his latest project 
And, you know, I, I'm just blown away by how he's been successful in, in like multiple fields. His latest project is he's starting his own comic book company. Whoa. OK, and he's he's uh, he's got a, a crowdfunding campaign. I, I think he even created his own crowdfunding platform. I don't even think he's using like <laughs> or whatever. Pure and, profit and, then. Yeah, yeah. That makes yeah, sense. And he set a goal. I forget what his goal was. I think his goal, his goal. And this is like his his startup money uh, to actually like, you know, he's he's like buying printing presses or like literally making his own comic book company. Wow. And so that that's what this money is for. And people you know, can pledge and then they're going to get like, you know, copies of the first book that he already has written and everything like that. And he's explicitly like, look, I just want to make comic books that tell cool stories and have cool characters that people mm-hmm. that like comics will enjoy. As far as I know, he's not even like, hey, we're only going to put out libertarian stuff. Exactly. Right? It's like, yeah. no, no, we're just going to try and put out cool stuff that comic book fans will actually like. Um, and so I think his original goal was maybe like a 500 grand for this thing. He's, he's blown that out of the water. He's, I don't even know what he's up to. He's like a three, $4 million or something like that. Damn dude, you are white pilling me so hard right now. So Yeah. Yeah. Look, look it up. Um, I will. I, I think it's, uh, I think it's called Ripaverse is, is the company because one of his nicks, one of his nicknames, I think, one of Eric's nicknames is, is Ripa. Right. Yes. Online. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's his, uh, that's his YouTube name. Yes. I know who that yeah, guy yeah. is. Yeah. 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 Uh, I remember, I, how did I, I think I came across him talking about politics once actually. And that's why I was just so interested in it. Cause he was like, he's like an anarcho-capitalist. He's yeah, very, yeah, he's, he's, he's a hardcore libertarian. Yeah. Like, yeah. You know, and he, he even will put like some of that stuff in, into his music. Yeah. It's not, his music isn't my personal taste, but like, he's got a big following. So yeah. I didn't realize he was like a musician. Kind of music, like that's so cool. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a huge into death metal either, but you know, I want to, I want to listen to it now just cause that's cool. Um, and yeah, I, yeah, I, the, the band is called backwards with a Z instead of an S on the end. Nice. Nice. Yeah. See, okay. That, the reason why I'm white pilled, especially though, is that he said, we just want to tell good stories and he didn't, I, he didn't explicitly say he's not going to insert his politics into it. Right. He just yeah, said, I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised if like certain libertarian themes don't show up, at least in the books that he himself But those are writes. themes, not propaganda. That's the thing. And that's what I, and that's what impresses me most is like if you focus on the stories, the people will come like that's all that really matters. And, you know, this is one of those things, too, that like I think people have been overstating it mostly because they don't know anything. But like, you know, I'm a video game fan and the news just dropped that GTA six is going to feature the first female protagonist since uh, the first game. And they apparently are going to be working on being a little more sensitive with the humor in the game. And I was like, okay, that sounds bad, but people are overstating a little bit. It's also, we don't, we don't know what's going to happen with this, but at the same time, it does worry me that one of the greatest pieces of satire, which is the Grand Theft Auto series is getting soft, but I'm, I'm just worried about that, but I'm not going to make any assumptions, but yeah, I think, um, I think the idea of just telling good stories is what people want in every medium. I mean, to use video games as an example, probably my favorite game of all time is Red Dead Redemption 2. Came out a couple of years back, actually four years ago. And it's just, it, like, there were some weirdos out there who said that it was too woke because the, the gang you're in is diverse, which is just stupid. It's like, no, the game is not woke. It's not anti-woke. It's just a story. It's just a very beautiful, amazing, very long story. And, I th- and it's also the most successful video game I don't think it's the most successful game of all time, but it had the most successful launch of all time. It sold like $750 million worth of copies in like the first 24 hours or something, some crazy number like that. It shows that that's what people want. There's a reason also that I think Force Awakens, you know, to go back to Star Wars, was the most successful one out of the gate because it 
well, it was the first one. It was the first Star Wars in years, but also it was just a boring remake of A New Hope. And A New Hope is a great movie because it doesn't have any politics in it, at least that you can't really pick up on very overtly. And then things just kind of went out of control after that. Yeah, well, the the sort of great nerd fandom uh, uh, clicks, you know, around whether it's around certain movie franchises, certain comic books, certain video games, before kind of Gamergate and, and Trump and Me Too and then everything since kind of kicked off the, the, the Great Awakening, people of very different worldviews could be fans of the same thing, enjoy the same thing, talk endlessly about the, the nuances and, and stuff of their favorite, you know, what it, whether it's a, a favorite comic series, favorite movie franchise, mm-hmm. and they could, they could talk in a friendly way and politics would never even come up, mm-hmm. you know, um, and if they had a disagreement, it was like a nerd disagreement. Yeah, like, yeah. Oh, I think, I think Han did shoot first, you know, yeah. like it would be that kind of thing where it's like, you can have someone who, who's a, a freaking socialist and, and someone who's, you know, a right-wing lib- libertarian, but like they could potentially both be huge fans of the same movies or the same. That, that's whatever. why you have and, such a wide variety of fans of the V for Vendetta graphic novel. Even though Alan Moore comes from a very anarchist position when he made that, you have people on the left and right, not even political at all, just loving that story. Um, the movie is another story, but uh, uh, but yeah, like I think you're right. It's like it's about like nerdy minutiae is what people used to disagree about. And maybe there was an insecurity involved for some of these people where they're like, okay, I need I'm I'm 35 years old. I shouldn't be arguing about whether Han shot first. But at the same time, like those conversations are fun. They're silly. I like them. It's like the, the conversations you see in Clerks and Clerks 2. Like they're re- th- those movies were great because those are the kinds of conversations nerds like to have together. Like this rings of power bullshit that's happening right now. I'm just like seeing like people saying, oh, it's too woke. And oh, it's, you know, it's going to be great. And you're just a racist and all that. And I'm just sitting there just being like, I kind of want to argue with someone about why Galadriel's played by a different actress. Cause don't elves, aren't they immortal and ageless? <laughs> like why isn't Kate <laughs> Blanchett back in the series? But nobody wants to talk about that. They just want to talk about whether it's racist to criticize it or if the show is gone woke or whatever. <laughs> Yeah, a lot of the the root of this, um, whether it's in comics or or TV or movies, a lot of the root of it seems to come to the decision of which writers to hire. Mm-hmm. And the trend seems to be that you, if you're a woke ideologue, especially if you also personally check a bunch of diverse diversity boxes, you can get hired as a writer at say. Marvel Comics or one of the Disney film companies or or get your book read by any publishing house. That's a big problem right now in publishing. Like people yeah. are, are blowing the whistle on that, especially like James Patterson was called a racist recently because he wasn't complaining. He was just saying, look, if you if you're a 55 year old white guy, you're just not going to get published now. He just stated that as a fact. It wasn't a criticism. It was just a fact. And of course, he had to go on an apology to her. So, yeah. And and I can remember, I didn't quite realize the significance of what it was a portent of the time. But, um, you know, from about 2009 to 2014. That sounds about right of when this stuff started. Yeah. Yeah. During that time period, I was very intense in in writing short fiction stories, mostly mm-hmm. genre fiction. You know, I wrote a lot of sci-fi and horror stuff and, and a little bit of fantasy, too. That's funny. I was and, doing the exact same thing at around that exact same time. Just funny coincidence. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's something it's something I just kind of like put on hold when I started the podcast, because then that that ate up all my extracurricular time. Yep. But um, it, but. 
I got, um, I forget, maybe 18 short stories published in various ven- venues. None of, none of them, you know, super big paying or prestigious, but a few of them were, were decent. Right. Um, and I can remember when I was, you know, looking for venues to submit stories to on the various websites that do that, that, that they, it started to get increasingly common where a lot of venues would specify the, the identity politics characteristics of either the stories they wanted Mm -hmm. or of the authors they wanted or both. Like they would literally be like, this magazine is only taking uh, submissions from writers who are LGBTQ. Right. Or this, this uh, publication is only accepting submissions from people who are, you know, persons of color. Oh, well, they didn't, they they would say it about the stories too. They'd be like, right. Yeah. Yeah. This anthology is only going to be about, you know, stories which that, that kind of bothers me a little bit less because I understand if you're putting together like an anthology of short fiction that that there's a theme and fine right. if your theme yes. is like this is this is you know uh, a fiction about gay people like that 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 didn't really bother me because I was like all right well that's what those people that are making that that you know anthology want to do that's fun it's to course, me that's yeah. different than saying we're going to do an anthology only about zombie stories you know it's like okay, right whatever yeah but but yeah it, it definitely like I noticed it and it bothered me and it was before the wokeism really broke uh big so I didn't quite at the time realize what it was a portent of mm-hmm. but you know I, I think back now where very often especially if it was a venue that wasn't really specifying, you know, that you had to write a story with woke themes, mm. but I, you know, I might look at a thing, but like, Oh, that, that might be a cool, I've got a story that that place might like, Oh, and then I read through and they're like, and we're only accepting submissions from women of color. At this oh. point, that's what they're, they're about. I, I remember this, t- this too, because like I said, I was doing the exact same thing. And what bothered me was not even that it was how passive aggressive it was because they can't legally say we don't uh, uh, white men need not apply like that's illegal. You can't do that, obviously. However, what they did is they said they use language like we're strongly encouraging and looking for diverse voices like it's code yeah, essentially. Yeah. And that was yeah. what was so disheartening to me was the lack of directness. It's like, just say it. I know you can't, but just say it. You know, that's what you're doing. It's sort of like back in the day where like resorts and country clubs would be like select clientele only. Yes. Right? Because yes. they didn't want to be, they didn't want to say no freaking Jews, you know? <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I, and th- that's a shame. I, you know, at this point though, I think the, I, I like what you were telling me about uh, Eric July doing. He's just saying, fine. He's, he's doing what, I, I love when fucking progressives suddenly turn into the most libertarian motherfuckers out there where they're just like, well, if you don't like it, make your own then. And then Eric July said, okay, hold my beer. I'm going to do that. And then he did like, that is just so cool to me. And I think that that is sort of the answer to a lot of this too. It's not like, yeah, we can just say what I'm doing and I can be like a friend of mine says that I'm like an ent. I'm always just like, well, let's just wait and see what happens and then respond accordingly. And, uh, and we can do that. We can just, you know, sit back and say, okay, well, this is going to phase out of fizzle out eventually because it's not profitable. Well, why don't, if you have the means, why don't you help create a thing that is an antidote to it? And not like, again, that's why I'm so happy when I hear about Eric July just making stories. Like that's what he wants. He's not creating a conservative Twitter, for example, like, like that's what a lot of this stuff tends to become. And that's what I don't like. I don't like silos like that. I just want, like if the silo is good stories versus stories that are propaganda, well then, you know, that's fine. But I don't like political silos determining what culture I consume. You know what I mean? Yeah. I would be bored and distracted if every single movie being made 
uh, espouse my own ideology, but right. I was doing it in a very ham-fisted, didactic way. Um, and and the the movies themselves were extremely predictable and boring and whatever. Right. And and well, doesn't Milia share uh, the sort of anarcho-capitalist ideology a little bit? But he never makes it clear if he does. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think he's he's some some sort of blend of sort of right-wing conservative and libertarian he's he's some sort of kind of kind of mixture of that uh in that in that documentary milius um either he says or someone says about him that he's a zen anarchist which i thought was just such such a wonderful kind of i love that (laughs) open-ended sort of thing well yeah because i mean well and that's the funny thing i have that book that my awesome mother got for me for christmas called demanding the impossible uh history of anarchism and zen buddhism is in there i mean uh so is taoism like it, there's a lot of anarchist aspects to uh, a lot of these old religions, which is really uh, interesting to me. But yeah, I, I think the um, there was one thing I wanted to bring up because I brought up Eric Hoffer and True Believer before. There was something he wrote earlier in the book that resonated with me, where he, um, if you don't mind me quoting it, yeah, sure, go ahead. Yeah, he says, um, "Those who would wish to transform a nation or the world cannot do so by breeding and captaining disconsent." or by demonstrating the reasonableness and desirability of the intended changes, or by coercing people into a new way of life. They must know how to kindle and fan an extravagant hope. It matters not whether it be hope of a heavenly kingdom, of a heaven on earth, or plunder and untold riches, of fabulous achievement, or world dominion. If the communists win Europe and a large part of the world, it will not be because they know how to stir up discontent or how to infect people with hatred, but because they know how to preach hope. And the reason that stuck out to me and was sort of like the first big, broad, philosophical white pill moment for me when thinking about this conversation we're about to have and and reflecting on where this great awakening has come and why I think it's kind of on its back foot and is on its way out is because I thought about it and what I understand, at least, of the various aspects of what you would call woke ideology, you could say maybe... um, gender activism or anti-racism or uh, feminism is kind of like irrelevant now because of gender activism. That's a whole civil war that's interesting enough on its own to talk about. Uh, but just all those tenets and you think about, I, I was thinking about like what they actually are preaching and there is no hope in any of it. It's all very nihilistic. It's all very negative. It's all resentment based. It's all diagnosing what's supposedly wrong with our society. And there's like a sort of sense like, oh, until when we overcome these things, things will be better, but there's no prescription. I mean, Ibram Kendi comes closest to giving prescriptions and his prescriptions are the most on the nose totalitarian thing I have ever read. Like someone sincerely suggests a department of anti-racism that's unelectable by the public, for example, like to his credit, he says he doesn't think it's going to happen. But, you know, at that point, then I'm just like, why even say it? Like, it, like, what's the point? Like, if, are you just saying that you're, are you just that pessimistic that, or nihilistic that you say that this is what we have to do, but it's something that can't be done? Like, well, then what's the point of your entire project at that point? But anyway, my, my tangent on Kendi aside, I, I don't see hope coming from these people. There is no hope. I don't see hope coming from conservatives either, but because they're, they're reacting to all this stuff, but what they're reacting to is a very negative force, a very nihilistic force that really just sees 
I'll just I'll keep it confined to America, but I'll broaden it to the West. I just finished reading Douglas Murray's uh, War on the West, which is a very good book. Uh, it just has this hopeless nihilism baked into it. And I think Hoffer was right when he said you cannot have a sustainable movement, a mass movement that doesn't preach hope. So and I don't see that changing. I don't think if you are a believer in a lot of these woke tenets, you are thinking about things in a hopeful way. You're just living in the present of hating everything that you see as oppressive. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with that. I mean, you know, at least in uh, other totalizing ideologies as, as dark and evil as, as some of what they wanted to do was, and as much as their means were often horrific, Mm -hmm. they at least would have some kind of like a utopia at the end. Like even the Nazis had their version of like, well, once we take over, you know, most of, most of Europe and, and exterminate the people we don't like, then we'll have this wonderful utopia of just the master race around. Right. Um, Like Stalin had his five-year plans. Hitler had his 1000 year Reich. I mean, that's like, those are myths. Those are future myths, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's one of the things that, that the wokeism is missing. And I, I really do think uh, it's, it's a fundamentalist cult when you talk about the most mm-hmm. uh, extreme elements of it, that it, it very much is a fundamentalist cult mm-hmm. uh, in terms of how it operates. Yeah. And well, and we talked about this too, uh, I believe in our conversation about this, that it also is decentralized. It's completely decentralized. That's another thing Hoffer brings up is that if you can't make it compact, the movement, then it's not going to last either because it's decentralized at that point. There's nowhere for the energy to be directed. And as we know, Wokistanis don't have a, they're not very good at centralizing. And when they do anything even remotely close to centralizing cars get set on fire. (laughs) Yeah. And also, you know, potential leaders who emerge among them are very likely to become victims of their own. Exactly. It's more like the French revolution than like the, um, than uh, the October revolution. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, that seems to be like the two things that probably have been a blessing that, mm-hmm. that the, the Wokistani cult yeah. lacks. One, one is a is a you know a, a compelling portrait of the future utopian end goal, mm-hmm. and the other is like a single leader figure around which everything can coalesce. Well, yeah, and then when you have the examples of them becoming organizations like Black Lives Matter, the organization, not the sentiment, it's hopelessly corrupt. It's just completely corrupt like any other organization is, especially one that becomes top down. That's where I, I kind of go full anarchist. And I'm just like, look, when you when you organize, you become corrupt. When you don't organize, you are not going to accomplish anything. And But I think also the corruption from the Black Lives Matter organization is very much because it doesn't preach a message, uh, preach a message of hope or have a, a, you know, an end goal. It's just there to exist and memorialize uh uh, uh, black men being killed. And the fact that it's so corrupt and doing this without the permission of a lot of families has had a lot of families contact them and say, Hey, get my son's name out of your fucking mouth, you know, which I totally appreciate. Like it's, it's like, it's taking agency away from a corrupt organization. Um, but yeah, so I just, I think you're right. Those are the two major planks of why I don't think this matters. Now I understand the, the criticism that I actually get from a lot of my more conservative friends. When I say this, that, I don't think this has a a chance in hell of lasting. They say, well, because it doesn't have organization, they say, well, they've captured all the institutions. And to that, I say, yes, that's true. But those institutions, much of them are market driven, which goes back to my argument about why I'm not that worried about Hollywood, 
um, in the long term, at least, because the, the more this stuff fails and the more it is failing, the more likely it is that it's going to stop being captured. And as much as I didn't want to believe it for the longest time, Andrew Breitbart was right when he said that politics is downstream from culture. So once the culture starts its shift, that form of progressive politics is going to stop, you know, really being all that effective in Washington. Now, at the same time, the backlash against the politicians who are espousing this stuff is happening a lot faster than the backlash towards the culture. So it's hard to say where it's going to go, but uh, or what's going to cave first. But I do think that there's something to the idea that institutional capture, the, the thing that we hear a lot about, especially from the right, as being the biggest danger of all this stuff, isn't as much of a danger as I think they think it is or say it is. I think it's a little overstated. It's not to say that it's not important. I just think that it's it shouldn't be stated in such black-pilled terms, if that makes sense. Yeah, and a lot of the institutions are crumbling. A lot of, a exactly. lot of the institutions... A lot of them were crumbling even before they got taken over by wokeism. Mm -hmm. You know, things like uh, the corporate mainstream news media, mm -hmm. uh, big newspapers. You know, like who who really reads the New York Times or watches yeah. CNN anymore in terms of numbers? It's like you know, a handful of boomers. Yeah. Um, and and so yeah, the, these things already for for a variety of reasons, many of them simply having to do with economics and technology, have been in, in serious trouble. So yeah. I mean, the fact that, okay, the, the Wokies seem to have taken over a lot of the New York Times. Okay, but I don't think the New York Times is what it used to be just in terms of influence. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and even academia, which gets artificially propped up by government policy and the subsidizing of student loans mm -hmm. and the, the accreditation cartel system and the, the kind of continuing... Um, uh, what's the the word I'm looking for? Credentialism, yeah, or, you know that sort of thing. I, I think that's that's declining and and falling too. Where um, you know increasingly, I think a lot of hard nosed like business owners and things, they're less interested in your formal university degrees. Some I think are starting to even see it as a as a negative in a lot of cases. Mm -hmm. Versus somebody who you know uh, maybe has has gone out and and you know learned a valuable skill in the real world. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, I think th there's a lot of that going on as far as just a lot of it. A lot of institutions are um, they're Goliaths in mm -hmm. the sense that, you know, if you if you read um, uh, Malcolm Gladwell's uh, David and Goliath. Yeah. Um, he says, like, yeah, Goliath is huge and strong, but he's also, you know, very uh, he's got a bunch of health problems because he's a giant. Right. And he's, yeah. you know, it's like his knees are given out. He's blind. <laughs> like, you know, so like, yeah, he's he's big and strong and he is dangerous. And if you, you know, get too close to him, he can he can do damage. But at the same time, uh, he's blind and not that bright and, and his health is failing. He's slow. Yeah. That's the other thing too, is that institutions are slow. Uh, and our technology, as you put it, has sped everything up like exponentially at this point. Um, and I, I think that uh, people who lean into that correctly are going to be fine. And the people who try desperately to dig in their heels uh, like in these institutions are the ones who are going to be just left in the dust and who are going to ultimately fail. And, you know, I'm someone who believes that if a business can't compete, it shouldn't exist. Like if you're not offering something that people want, then that's your, that's your fault, you know? So um, like, obviously that doesn't apply to every single business. Like if a small business gets shut out by Walmart, that classic trope, you know, yeah, sure. That sucks. But generally speaking, if you're an institution that can't adapt, then you don't deserve to exist. And now I would love if that sentiment 
was uh, injected into our alphabet agencies, but you know, you can't have everything, I guess. <laughs> um, yeah. That, by the way, I, I kind of, I, I think I first realized that this, um, that this vibe shift was probably happening was the universal mockery of the infamous, now infamous woke CIA ad. Remember that? Oh yeah. Oh man. If anyone listening hasn't seen it, I find it hard to believe that any of our shared listeners haven't seen this or know what we're talking about. But if you haven't, look it up. It's this woman. What is she? She identifies herself as a single mother Latina of color. Ag- I think she even says Latinx. Oh, God. Well, it's, by the I way, I, before I forget, uh, the big blow up on Twitter yesterday that was or two days ago, whatever it was, was that was really fun to watch was Comic-Con, which is, I think, going on right now. They posted something saying, oh, we're so happy to celebrate our Philippines as in Filipino or Philippine X. Oh, I don't, yeah. Yeah. And there's something called Filipino Twitter, I guess. You know, you have Black Twitter, you have transgender Twitter, you have uh, you apparently have Indian nationalist Twitter, which is probably the most racist stuff I've ever seen in my life, by the way. Uh, that's a whole story. Uh, but you have Filipino Twitter. They exploded. Like so many comments were saying, if you ever call me Philippine X, I'm going to drop kick you in the face. It's <laughs> like, wow. I, I, I just, I love when people who get these fake identities foisted on them by largely white progressives just turn on them and say, go fuck yourself. That's the most satisfying thing to see for me, at least. I just, I love that. It's it's self-assertion of dignity and everything. It, it, that's another white pill moment for me. But but yeah, like the, anyway, the CIA ad though, whether she said Latinx or not, she also says, I've also been diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder. Right. <laughs> I mean, I'm someone who's been diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder, but I'm not going to just state that outright. <laughs> Especially if I work for the CI goddamn A. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. And, and that video was the one that got, I think, the most circulated, but there was a whole series of them. There was one yeah. with like like a, a, a gay guy who mm-hmm. works at the CIA's library or something like that. Oh, it's man. like, okay, well, yeah, you're the CIA librarian. That's fine. But your organization still commits murder and torture and destroys entire nations. It's, <laughs> yeah. you know, that's like being the, being the, the the librarian for the Third Reich or whatever. Yeah. It's, you know, it's like like okay, yeah, maybe you're not the one out there getting your hands dirty, but like you are, you know. It's like Albert Speer just saying, "I was just the architect." Yeah, <laughs> it's like yeah. okay, sure, sure. Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's th- this is another white film moment I can give you that um, I'm sure you've seen because you're also a fan of Jimmy Dore, like I am. But the but I can tell you that like normie liberal left liberal people that I know people in my family, close friends of mine, they're the ones who love the meme of Republicans drone bombing someone and Democrats drone bombing someone. The Democrats one is covered in like the fucking pride flag and all, and the BLM stickers and all that stuff. I have seen far more endorsement of that meme from regular normie left liberal people than from, you know, people like, you know, you and I and other people who are more on the fringes, you know? So I think that that's a good sign that people do recognize that our defense department, I guess, or agencies are not forces for good. And they see through their attempts to be all like, oh, we're diverse. So therefore our hands are clean, you know? So I I think that's a good sign that most people think it's hilarious. And yeah, yeah. Well, and another uh, white pill to me has been the stream of of um, articles coming out in recent months saying how I think pretty much all branches of the U.S. military are facing drastic recruitment shortages. Ooh, okay. And this at a time when the economy is shit, which usually makes military recruitment go up. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, 
you know, and they've mentioned that that a lot of the I don't know if every branch of the military, but a lot of the, the military is lowering requirements in terms of like physical fitness requirements, and <laughs> what things will get you psychologically, you know, your intelligence requirements, like all these things. They're lowering their standards and they're still not getting enough recruits in a crappy economic time. So in a lot of these articles, they, they sort of are like, we can't figure out why. <laughs> And, you know, they'll they'll post a bunch of reasons and, and most of them are bullshit. Occasionally they'll they'll bring up one that's plausible. But I tweeted about this when one of these articles came out and I said, yeah, yeah. The, you know what they won't say or what I, I believe anyway are the real reasons military recruitment is so low. Number one, the current administration is obviously completely strategically incompetent when it comes to foreign policy. They're trying to provoke two front World War Three yeah. very ineptly. Number one. So who and, wants and to be in the military when that happens? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and, and who wants to be, you know, your commander in chief is, is Joe Biden and, and your second in command ready to take over is Kamala. Good luck. Oh, um, good luck considering that the types of people that usually are the most likely to join the military are not going to be enthused about that. Mm-hmm. The second reason I think it's keeping at least some people out is the the COVID vax mandates for military members. Right, right. And then and then the third one that I think is is the last of the big three reasons why they're having such problems is uh, that the military has gone so crazy woke mm-hmm. in so much of their their messaging and even in some of their policies. And again, think about like the types of people that are most likely to join the U.S. military. They're probably more likely to be conservative. They're probably more likely to be, you know, from from smaller towns or rural areas of the South and West. It's not going to be a bunch of woke people from from Portland and San Francisco that are joining the military. And but those people will cosplay. <laughs> they will yeah, cosplay yeah. as terrorists, at least. <laughs> yeah, right, right. And, and they'll applaud. They'll applaud when the Pentagon puts out a bunch of, you know, woke ads or whatever. They'll <laughs> applaud, but they ain't going to join up and their kids ain't going to join up. Of course. Um, and, and you know, the, the working class kid in the Midwest or the South or whatever, he's not going to be looking to sign up for that. No. And and see, you say that. And I, I really wanted to believe. And actually, of all places, Vice wrote an amazing response to the woke CIA ad where they said, look, this is so ridiculous. This has to be an op. This is a psyop from the CIA. They're trying to gauge public reaction to stuff. But from what you're saying, no, it sounds like the, you know, the entire state apparatus has essentially bought into this stuff because they think that's what people want. But I think that also kind of leads into the whole other reason that I'm not white-pilled on this because I don't think people have realized this, shockingly, but Twitter isn't real life, you know? And, uh, you know, Hollywood isn't real life. These things are, you know, very small, like very powerful, but very small, like cross sections, vertical slices of American culture. And I think there is a sort of that, that, that discontinuity, that dissonance is growing. I think people are increasingly realizing that. And that's what I mean by the vibe shift, but it's like, it does strike me as, um, how can I put it? It does strike me as disturbing, I guess, that people haven't really overtly started to realize that yet. And that's why we get like in- institutions as a whole buying into ideology that makes no sense. Like, you know, I, I was saying in our conversation about realignments that I have concern, ideological concern for post liberal conservative thought because it's basically theocracy. But that has no purchase. If somehow there was a big flip and then that got a lot of cultural um, mileage on Twitter or in show business or something, we would start to see like a push for theocracy from our institutions. It just isn't happening. It's not going to happen. But my point is just that 
These are fringe beliefs and they're, they have undue influence because I think people in institutions see these small sub-communities of sorts as being indicative of greater trends than really exist, if that makes sense. Yeah. And, you know, sort of like what the neocons have, have historically done, mm-hmm. the, the, the true believe in Wokies are often very good in institutions at worming their way into key positions, where right? Even if most of the people, like I am sure that most of the rank and file people that work at the defense department or the CIA are not true believe in Wokies. No, I, I, yeah. I am certain that's the case, but, but, you know, the Wokies are good at taking over the HR department, Mm -hmm. uh, some other key things like that. And in general, in in the atmosphere we've had the last, especially last five, six years, they're good at getting their way and getting themselves promoted, even if their views really don't reflect uh, the the vast majority of the rank and file members of the institution. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, that, that has allowed them kind of like the neocons in a way to punch above their weight in terms of numbers, just by being very strategically effective at, at taking over and manipulating institutions. But it's not sustainable. I don't you, think. No, forever. no. But it, but again, and this is something I said at the top is that, you know, don't mistake my white pilling here that we still don't know the damage caused or that will be caused uh, along the way as this thing drops with a thud. Like, we don't know what the cost is going to be. I mean, we do kind of in the sense of what was it in Minneapolis, the cost of the riots in 2020. I want to say the cost was almost a billion dollars or over a billion dollars, something along those lines. So, we can start to, you know, start tallying up like how much this is going to cost in terms of money. But in other ways, I don't know. Like, I'm not as worried about a fascist reaction to this as I think some people are, and as or as much as I might have been back in 2020, because frankly, what happened in 2020 for me was something that really disturbed me in that I not only saw complete nihilistic chaos being tolerated and even celebrated and enabled by the state that I started to think, okay, well, what's so horrible about this is that the only way to put a stop to this kind of thing is to embrace fascist policies. And that's a nightmare. That's a self-evident nightmare. But like, I mean, and that's sort of the talking point a lot of conservatives make, which is that, okay, well, you should only support the people who are actually willing to take this on, you know, head on. And I understand the impulse emotionally. I really do. Because like I said, I just, I felt that I was like, look, I don't, but I don't like that. I don't think that's a positive. I don't think that to come up against this stuff, we have to, uh, we have to resort to those kinds of policies. But when nobody does anything to stop it, you start to think in pretty depressingly deterministic terms. We were just like, look, the the longer we tolerate this shit happening unchecked and unchallenged due to fear, which by the way is the big thing, people don't challenge it because you know, they have better things to do, but also because they understand the social cost of challenging it. This is talked about by everybody who is a commentator on this stuff. Um, like I said, I recently read Douglas Murray's War on the West, and he talks about it a lot there too. Um, but John McWhorter also talks about it. He closes his book, Woke Racism, uh, Woke Racism, saying, all you have to do to this stuff is stand up and don't be afraid and don't agree with these people. Just let them act it out like it's like it's the religion that it is and just say look i don't agree with you we need more of that but the fact is people aren't going to do that because that's hard it's very hard to do that so what happens when i start seeing that happening over and over and over again i become very depressed about how really 
we are looking at a necessity of a sort of authoritarian right wing takeover. And at that point, we if we get to that point, we deserve it. Like, does that make sense? I mean, that's that's my black pill right there for the episode, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's definitely some elements that are like that on the right, but yeah, I've I've never been convinced they're particularly either numerous or no. or influential. Uh, I see a lot more, honestly, of people who not that long ago would have been considered maybe a little bit of right of center. It's mm-hmm. like there's a lot of people that they just they just want to be left alone. Mm-hmm. They just want to be left alone. They don't want to be constantly, you know, lectured to and preached at, and you know, have their favorite. Uh, comic books and movies ruined and turned into preachy propaganda that sucks. Um, you know, they, they just want to, they just want to kind of be left alone to sort of be how normal Americans, at least to a large extent used to be where you could just like, you know, live your life and not have someone constantly trying to ideologically bludgeon you. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately that does seem to be the, uh, the default for at least our government. That just is what they do. I mean, I, I'm willing to bet there are some candidates I just haven't thought of out there who are preaching that, that like, that's what we want to do for you. I mean, the impression I get is that's what both Rand and Ron Paul were all about for a long time. How relevant Rand Paul is on the national level, I don't know. But I'm just saying that I I get the sense that we are in short supply, especially with the Democrats, but, you know, in a lot of ways with Republicans, too, of people who endorse the idea of just leaving the average citizen alone. And I think that's an after effect of COVID, probably, but it's also a feature of the overall progressive milieu that's been in existence since, you know, the days of Wilson and so forth. Yeah. And um, man, I could I could talk about this stuff for another couple of hours, but unfortunately, I am going to have to to bail within the next few minutes. So let's try to let's let's try to drop one more white pill for people then. <laughs> okay, do you have one? I th- okay, I I think uh yeah, well it's not a white pill really as much as I just want to like give a prescription, which I don't often do, but I I should. It's like support the things like uh Eric July's efforts, you know, support the the you know, the grassroots stuff, support the films that and filmmakers that just tell stories, you know, like go watch um the amazing Nicolas Cage movie that just came out, uh, The Unbearable Weight of Massive Genius, I think is what it's called, uh, or Massive Talent, The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. It's just a good fucking movie. You know, watch stuff like that, consume that stuff, and, you know, like just uh, and, and be patient. I think be patient, support the things that are doing good work, and just be patient. I do think the market will take care of this, it, like largely. Uh, let's just fingers crossed the damage isn't too great by the time it's over. Yeah, that sounds good. And yeah, build, build your own when you can, you know, that's, that's what the two of us have tried to do with our podcasts. Um, That's what I'm going to be trying to do with some of the other stuff I'm going to do now that I've uh, walked away from, from uh, conventional academia. Which I want to say on the, I mean, I already said it, but I want to say it on the record. Congratulations. Thank you. I'm I'm hoping it all turns out okay. Yeah. (laughs) It's, it's terrifying uh, uh, right now, but um, Mm -hmm. Well, and if you need me again to, you know, help fill in the gaps between your episodes on propaganda, please don't hesitate to ask. I mean, I uh, we didn't even get to uh, talk about the great movies that have come out in the last decade. That's another white builder. There have been a lot of great movies in the last decade. Yeah, yeah. We'll we'll have to save that in particular to be a whole a whole conversation on its own. So we'll, we'll have to spin that one off because yeah, I actually had a, had a list I had jotted down over the past few yep, weeks. Me but, too. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yep. So yep. we'll have to save that for next. Yeah. Time. Like I said, my one recommendation: the new Nicholas Cage 
Cage movie. You would really like it, by the way. It's very much an 80s buddy comedy. Oh, cool. Yeah, I haven't I haven't seen it yet, but I've I've heard good things from other people about it, too. So I'll definitely check it out. And uh, I'll, I'll just throw out one really recent one that I've I've mentioned sure. um, on social media a little bit. Old Henry. It's either Henry. 2021 or 2022. Old Henry. It's got um, shoot. I forget the actor's name, the kind of weird looking guy, but he's a great actor who was in uh, Buster Scruggs and Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou? Oh, um, yes. Uh, Tim Blake Nelson. Yeah, yeah, there you go. There you yeah. go. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's he's the star of it. Old Henry. It's a Western. It is really I've good. never heard of that. That sounds amazing and up my alley, though, because you know, we need more westerns. <laughs> Those movies are so yeah. good. <laughs> it is a really good western. Okay. And just, you know, a cool story. It's pretty violent in parts, but it, it's a it's um it's one of my favorite uh, movies I've seen in the last like year or so. Well, I live for violence in movies. And here's a fun fact, by the way, Tim Blake Nelson, he made the greatest Holocaust film ever made uh, called The Gray Zone back in 2001. It's based on a play he wrote. And huh. I cannot recommend that movie enough to people who want to totally ruin their day because it's horribly depressing. But that is what Holocaust movies should be. They shouldn't sugarcoat like right. Life is Beautiful did, for example. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's a yeah, it's a fun fact about him. I didn't because I knew him as an actor. But, you know, then I saw that movie when it came out, like when I was in, I was probably too young to see it, honestly, because I was like 15 mm-hmm. when it came out. But it was. Yeah, it's anyway. I I'm just happy to hear that there is a, another Western out there though, starring him. Cause I do like him as an actor. He's really fun. So yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah I'll like to check that out. Yeah. So yeah, I think we should check back in then and do another episode where we just talk about the good movies of the last decade, because that is a white pill in of itself, I think. Yep. All I right. Agree. Thanks a lot for having me, man. Yeah. Great talking with you. Appreciate it. And uh, talk again soon. All right, everybody, and thanks for listening, and thanks again to Alex for taking the time to talk to me for this episode, and again, I would urge everybody, check out History Impossible and consider chipping into Alex's Patreon, if, like me, you appreciate what he does. This is Free Range, full-time independent guerrilla scholar warrior, CJ, signing off and expect to hear from me sooner than you would have if a bunch of excellent individuals hadn't helped me to purchase my freedom.